I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter about the concepts of a one-state or a two-state solution for the Jewish state of Israel, I'm talking to the Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times opinion columnist, Brett Stevens. Brett Stevens, thank you so much for joining us today. We're talking today about Israel and calls for a one-state solution. Peter Beinhart wrote an op-ed where he talked about he no longer believes in a Jewish state, and he said that it's time to imagine a Jewish home that's no longer a Jewish state. What's he talking about, and is that a good idea? I mean, he's talking about what's called the one-state or binational solution, in which Israel ceases to be a Jewish state and becomes a homeland for all people to the west of the Jordan River, which would mean, in time, a state that is probably evenly divided between uh, Jewish and non-Jewish uh, citizens that would have the character somewhat approached or resembling that of you know, Lebanon. Why is this a bad idea? Well, it's a bad idea for many reasons, starting with the example of Lebanon. Beyond the tragedy of, what was it, earlier this month in the port of Beirut, uh, Lebanon was already in a catastrophic state because the terrible lesson of politics in the Middle East, but one can say this is also true in Europe as well, is that multinational states don't do well. But also unfortunate because aside from Israel, it's not entirely clear to me that Jews have better options elsewhere in the world. And I mean to include the United States in that equation where I think Jewish life is becoming uh, more tenuous than it used to be and where we might be on the same road that France has taken in the last uh, 30 or 40 years where a Jewish community, which once seemed deeply embedded in the institutions of the French state and French society, now feels not only increasingly on the outside, but is uh, often taking up the option of Aliyah, moving to Israel. So I think Peter's point of view is dangerous to Jews, and it's a non-starter in the region, but otherwise it's a very important argument. (laughs) Well, I want to talk about the American Jewish community in a minute because that's important, but on the topic of Israel and it being ostracized because it is a Jewish state. You know, you wrote that the more Israel's ostracized because it's a Jewish state, the less it's going to make concessions of any kind. Explain why that is and what some of the consequences of that are. Look, one can make legitimate criticisms of Israel. I don't agree with these criticisms, but one can make them legitimately that it has uh, for too long been occupying the West Bank. Gaza ceased being occupied 15 years ago, but too long occupied the West Bank, that it has uh, put a two-state solution out of reach and that the only solution for Zionism 
is for Israel to make the kinds of concessions that can create a Palestinian state or, or create the possibility of a Palestinian state by stopping or reversing the construction of settlements, for example, or other kinds of measures. But given Israel's geography and Israel's bitter history in the region, the only way in which Israel is going to make those concessions is if it feels that the Zionist enterprise, the idea of a Jewish state, has broad and binding support from American policy and opinion makers. If the view of Israelis is, look, these people aren't just against our policies in the West Bank, but are against the very constitution of our state, then the best thing we can do is hold on for dear life because we're going to be hated no matter what. So we may as well be hated with the benefit of territorial control than without that benefit. Paradoxically, Beinart's position ends up strengthening the case of the very people he claims to oppose the most, which is the Israeli right and far right that wants to make no concessions territorially vis-a-vis the Palestinians. So I was speaking to a group of college students the other day, and one of them asked me if a two-state solution meant that there was always going to be a Jewish government controlling Israel. And so I answered, yeah, there is. And I was sort of surprised at the question coming from this group of college students that somebody would ask that and sort of the casual way they asked that. Do you think that there's a rise among young people in America that they believe that you know, there's something wrong with a Jewish government, there's something wrong with a Jewish state, that a Jewish state shouldn't have a right to exist and be controlled by Jews? Yeah, I mean, if, if I had been asked that question, I would say, do you think that a uh, French government should always be in charge of France, right? Or, or a Hungarian government in charge of Hungary or a Polish government in charge of Poland? And Americans have, I think, trouble with the concept because the American order is something very different from the order of most other countries. Most countries are nation states, that is to say a political state and a nation, which means a people, right? You know, and and one can have all kinds of arguments with the concept of the nation state, but there's a legitimate argument, a theoretical argument to be made against the concept of the nation state. You can say, Why should Bangladesh be for the Bangladeshis and Japan for the Japanese and so forth and so on? Because it insists on a kind of ethnic character to the political order, right? At a theoretical level, you can say, well, that doesn't sit well with me. But why is it then that it's only the Jewish nation state that people are so offended by? I've never heard someone say, you know what, Japan has no right to exist. I mean, you can say Japan should have a more liberal immigration order and Japan should change this way and that, but no one questions Japan's right to exist, right? Nobody questions the fact that countries throughout Europe, including a country as liberal as Denmark, have established churches, right? The Danish Lutheran Church that has legal privileges, even though we all recognize Denmark is a highly liberal state because the idea of the nation state is the usual political category. The United States is different from that. You know, in, that we have this idea that we are not really a nation. We are a pluribus unum, right? 
and of course, one can have lengthy arguments about what kind of a nation are we, right? We are a civic nation, not an ethnic nation. But even we have all kinds of attributes of an ethnic nation state. You know, why is English so, you know, privileged? Why can't, you know, there be automatic translation to every single language that's conceivably spoken in America? It's funny that the people who ask that question, in my experience, tend to fancy themselves sophisticated thinkers. And yet it's the most parochial American question, which is, why can't the rest of the world be more like America? Weirdly enough, it's the sort of question that one frequently stereotypes sort of the, the, the dumb American is asking. Like, you know, what kind of idiot thinks that the whole world should be like America? Well, the sort of idiots who think there shouldn't be a Jewish nation state but have no problems with the Japanese one. Why do you think anti-Semitism is on the rise and people in America seem to be not as supportive of Israel as they were, you know, even four years ago? Well, I think there are a variety of reasons for it. You know, anti-Semitism is a phenomenon that is occurring on the left and it's occurring on the right. On the right, I think it is being abetted by a mode of conspiracy thinking that typically finds its mark, its target in the form of Jews. So, you know, when you talk about, you know, globalists conspiring in places like Davos to undermine sovereignty for the profits of the international bankers and their handmaids in, in corporatist media, right? There are people who may say that and not think that ultimately that is anti-Semitic, but every anti-Semite knows in his heart, oh, what he's really talking about is the Jews. So there's that aspect. And then there is the way in which anti-Zionism, more prevalent on the left, sort of seamlessly adopts so many of the tropes of classic anti-Semitism. So um, the idea that Jews are colonialists in the land of Israel, you know, it's an outrageous historical demonstrable falsehood, but it goes back to the old anti-Semitic canard that Jews don't belong to the country they're living in. Or the idea that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza and gratuitously killing Palestinians for no other reason than the satisfaction of some kind of bloodlust. That too is a classic anti-Semitic canard. So it's the kind of coming together of these two somewhat distinct movements that has led to this kind of resurgence. And it's why you see anti-Semitism of the right-wing variant expressing itself in a place like the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, right? But also anti-Semitism of a left-wing variant expressing itself elsewhere, right? Including, you know, bloodily. And my biggest fear, though, is that anti-Semitism, Andrew, is not just a bigotry. It's a conspiracy theory. Anti-Semitism yeah. says... The reason there is evil in the world is that a diabolical group of people known as the Jews are pulling the strings behind the scenes. And as we become a country that seems to be more tempted by conspiracy thinking, uh, we're going to see more and more anti-Semitism. So it's a reflection of the kind of decline in rational thinking that I think has overcome so much of the United States in recent years. And you see now in the American Jewish community a, a dwindling of support for Israel and a dwindling of support even 
in the form of, you know, American Jews supporting the BDS movement. Um, you see it on college campuses. You see it in terms of the American Jewish community feeling like expressing anti-Zionist and Israel sentiments even. Where is that coming from and how dangerous is that for Israel? Look, you have to take the views of college students with a bit of a grain of salt uh, with respect to college students. Most people I know in their 40s and 50s don't have the same views they had in their teens and 20s. And anti-Zionism is one of those sort of perennials of the left that people unthinkingly adopted at an early age because it seems to be in tune with their concept of justice and and they become more educated, more aware. So I'm mindful of that. But it seems like the opinions and the advice of the American Jewish community is mattering less today than it did even 10 years ago. I think that the broad force is shaping that. And one of them is that the way in which opinion is generated today seems to me a much more bottom-up enterprise than Mm top-down. It used to be the case that if you're a conservative, Bill Sapphire thinks this, or Charles Krauthammer thinks that. And so you're like, well, you know, that sounds good to me. But now everyone who's on Twitter is his own columnist in at least the 280-character form. There's a lot more crowdsourcing in terms of the generation of public sentiments, I think, which often looks a lot like mob rule. And I think the organized Jewish community has been somewhat slow to adapt to that different reality. And it has to, right? It it has to sort of understand that having Abe Foxman make a pronouncement, I I love Abe, but is not going to bring a lot of Jews along with him. It has to come about in, in different ways. And there are people who are sort of doing things in this field that are genuinely exciting and, and different and kind of understand the new media universe. You know, I think of someone like Chloe Valdery, who's, who's not Jewish, but has done a lot of work along these lines. They're going to be, I think, the people who are going to do more to shape opinion, frankly, than people like me, who, you know, represent established institutions and speak for those institutions in very established modes in the form of the 850-word column. So, you know, it'll be the millennials and the Gen Zers of genuine Zionists who will, I think, do more to shape the conversation than either I will or Peter will, quite frankly. That's interesting. I mean, why do some believe that Israel can be pressured into dissolving itself into a one-state solution where there might not be a Jewish state or Jewish control? My guess is that uh, the state of Israel is not about to dissolve itself because people want to make it feel guilty about fighting for its survival. I think there is a deeper crisis here that is a longstanding one in terms of the two conceptions of Judaism and diasporic Judaism and Zionistic Judaism are close cousins, but they're not the same in their emphases, in their mindset, in their, in their sense of what are the deep teachings of Judaism. And perhaps it was inevitable that much of the diaspora would simply not be persuaded that Zionism really Uh, speaks for their deep moral convictions, which are ethical convictions rather than peoplehood convictions. Now, I happen not to agree with that. 
I happen to think that if it were not for Israel, the diaspora would have no future. That if Israel didn't exist, the Jews would go the way of, I don't know, the Zoroastrians. You know, they still exist. But By very few people. Yeah, very few people. That Israel provides a locus of meaning and pride and relevance that diaspora, you know, forms of Judaism simply do not. It's sometimes very difficult to distinguish between what a reform rabbi believes and what a Unitarian, you know, Congregationalist minister believes. Therefore, making the world a better place, right? And that's great. You know, I'm all for it, but that's not Judaism. You know, Judaism is a much more distinctive, ethical, religious, and philosophical tradition that has specific things to say to a specific group of people. And those of us who are in the diaspora um, would lose sight of that fact were it not for the reality of a state of Israel that is a place and not just a concept. Well, you know, I know my cousins in Brazil, for instance, it's really important to them that the state of Israel exists. It's really important to me that the state of Israel exists because it feels to me that if I ever need a place to go, Israel's there. It seems like some are forgetting the importance of that. And I hear all the time that Jews are obsessed with the memory of the Holocaust and Israel's only reason for being a Jewish state is the memory of the Holocaust. And Israel's not going to ever concede to be a broader one state with the Palestinians because of the Holocaust. What do you say to that? Look, the Holocaust is simply the most vivid reminder and perhaps the most recent reminder of why the 2,000-year yearning for the return to a Jewish homeland and a Jewish state is so significant. But Israel is not about the Holocaust. Israel is not even about the millennia of persecution. Israel is about restoring people to their ancestral land, which they see as divinely given. By the way, I'm not a very religious person. I waver between atheism and agnosticism on my best days. <laughs> but I think it is a mistake to view Israel as a sort of function of the Holocaust or of European or historic persecution of Jews, because that, in a sense, suggests that Israeli identity or Jewish identity is really just a function of those who have hated us and tried to destroy us. Whereas I think Jewish identity is rooted in something much deeper and richer and more positive than this idea that, well, we just happen to have been born into this tribe that keeps getting its butt kicked in one shtetl or another. And so I push back on that. I mean, the Holocaust is a powerful reminder of why Judaism is needed at one level, or Israel is needed at one level, but it's not the deepest reason. And we need to keep those things in mind. Let's talk about the right of return for a minute. In Palestinians. It's the one demand that the Israeli government, you know, can't and won't ever concede. Why do one state advocates believe that the right of return, you know, need never be conceded? The core Palestinian demand is the right of return. And a generation of peace activists neglected that. They believe that a core Palestinian demand was a Palestinian state in some kind of territory. If that had been the case, I think that Israel and the Palestinian state would be living side by side now. But when the right of return, not to a Palestinian state, 
but to what is indisputably Israel, Tel Aviv, Haifa, so on. When that is the demand, then the demand is not a Palestinian state, but a Palestinian state atop of the state of Israel. And that has been the deal breaker, whether it was at Camp David in 2000 or uh, with the Olmert proposals in 2007 and eight, and more recent rounds of negotiation. If people say, you know, it's going to be a one state solution, of course, you'd never have to concede that because you say if it's one state, then you can live in Ramallah as easily as you can in Haifa. That's why this issue is so extraordinarily salient and significant. No Palestinian state can come into existence until Palestinian leaders say that their only return of Palestinians will be to a Palestinian state in a designated territory, which is not what is now called Israel. And until then, we're going to have this kind of continued stalemate. I'm a great believer in the two-state solution. It is the only rational outcome. Israel doesn't want to rule Palestinians indefinitely, control their lives. Palestinians certainly don't want to be ruled by Israelis. But for that to happen, there have to be certain baseline understanding. Two-state solution can't just mean I get my state and I also get yours, right? That's not how that game is played. And I hope that some future generation of Palestinian leaders are going to say to themselves, we can pretend, we can play this fantasy politics forever, or we can be pragmatists and get a state that will be smaller than what we want, will not achieve everything that we want, but that with, you know, effort and goodwill and intelligence can become a model to the rest of the region. Small can be beautiful. You can be the Singapore of the Far East. You can be the Costa Rica of Central America. And I look forward to a time when Palestinian leaders say, let's be the Costa Rica of this little plot of land. Let's not turn Gaza into an entrepot for terror. Let's make the West Bank a model for what high quality governance can be, not a kleptocracy run by Fatah. And have the Israeli government support them in this. And look, there's a lot that Israel can do as well. Okay. You know, I don't want to give you the sense that there's nothing that Israel uh, can't do. I mean, one of the things is Israelis have to be much more thoughtful and discerning about where settlements go. Right. I certainly don't think French Hill, an integral neighborhood of Jerusalem that's over the Green Line, should become part of a future Palestinian state. But outposts here and there that seriously hinder the possibility of an eventual Palestinian state are problematic to me. There's a lot Israel could do to improve the everyday life of, of Palestinians, make the checkpoints, places like Kalandia, uh, look more like modern airport lounges or bus stations rather than, you know, dusty road stops. Yeah, that's easy to do. Well, there's a lot that Israel could do that's easy and sensible and it should do. I don't want to give you the impression that everything Israel does is right and just. And sure, yeah. It's a country that consists of fallible people and that they've made bad decisions along the way. What I'm not prepared to concede is the idea that Israeli behavior has been willfully calculated to destroy the possibilities of Palestinian state, because that to me is contradicted by the historical record. And there, and there has to be a partnership on both sides. And, and that's always been the case. Do you think that we're in a generation of leadership now that makes this all untenable and there's going to have to be an emergence of new leadership that is going to you know, have to click on some level? Because it seems, you know, Abbas has lost his 
ability to negotiate. And he's also seems to have lost his support among his people. Hamas is a whole other story. And for the Netanyahu government, they don't seem like they're interested in renewing any kind of negotiations with both parties. Yeah, look, something is going to have to change. Uh, You've had a Palestinian president who's now in the 15th or 16th year of his elected four-year term of office. And uh, Hamas leadership, which, again, you know, took power bloodily by force in 2007, shows no signs of budging. Those are dictatorships, in effect. You also have an Israeli leader who's been in office for 11 years and seems unbudgeable. Longer than any other Israeli leader. That's true. And I am of very mixed mind about Benjamin Netanyahu. But, you know, people need to keep Clemenceau's maxim that the graveyards are filled with indispensable men firmly in mind. And it would unclog things if you did have a different set of leaders. But what you really need is not Palestinian leadership, but Palestinian people who say, you know what, we want something else. What we want isn't to destroy our neighbor. What we want is a state that emulates our neighbor, at least in its most admirable aspects. And and it certainly when you're in Israel, that feels attainable because you meet Palestinians who are like that, and you meet Israelis who are like that, and you meet people on both sides who certainly feel like they can work together and do work together. You feel all kinds of abilities to cooperate and and live together. But when you look at it from you know a distance, like we're looking at it now, and from a government standpoint, it certainly seems like it's impossible. You know, I think the big error that people on the far left make as well as on the far right is the idea that Palestinian culture will never change. You'll hear people on the far right say, you know, the Arabs can never be trusted, something like that, or they'll always be the same, or they'll always want to kill us. And at the same time, funnily enough, you hear people who purport to be champions of the Palestinians, who, when you say, well, what about a genuine democracy among the Palestinians? Or what about a Palestinian curriculum that doesn't constantly stress anti-Semitic tropes? Or what about Palestinian religious leaders who denounce the violence of Hamas? They'll sort of look at you and sort of say, ah, you know, that's, that's a fantasy. That'll never happen. And who are you to have these sorts of expectations? And that, again, is, you know, what's the expression? The soft bigotry of low expectations. And it's kind of an irony that on both the, the Jewish far right and also the Jewish far left, you have this demeaning, degrading attitude about Palestinians. I notice that many of these sort of left-wingers who claim to know Palestinians have only met them in the context of some kind of tour of the territories organized by a left-wing group like a B'Tselem, where they go meet, you know, well-known spokesmen. But it's rare that you find people who actually no Palestinian families have been in their homes, have traded birthday greetings and uh, congratulations on the birth of children or condolences on the death of parents. And there's this sort of stereotype view. I think w- what you were saying is absolutely true. What you find when you actually meet ordinary real Palestinians are people who are overwhelmingly creative, enterprising, highly individual people whom we stereotype at our peril. 
Yeah, that's right. And we shouldn't be doing that. One of the greatest experiences um, my sons had was that an exchange student came from Ramallah to their school and joined the football team with my sons. He had never played football before. He'd only played soccer and he'd never played American football. And he joined the football team and played with them. And he became like their brother. And they're still in touch with him. You know, we were going to go to Israel this summer if it wasn't for COVID. And we were going to go visit him in Ramallah. He's like the fourth Schwartz boy. You know, he's a great, great guy. And it was an amazing experience. And and that's not a unique experience for our family. We have other Palestinian friends that we know in Ramallah. And, you know, we've met other people in Israel that who are Palestinian. And it's just when you really connect on a human level and you realize that people are people. And the vision that you said for Palestine, like a Costa Rica or a Singapore, it can be attained and it can be attained with Israeli support. That's the vision that I'd like to see the Peter Beinarts of the world writing about. Well, one of my criticisms of Peter's book, The Crisis of Zionism, was that, you know, Palestinians were always sort of characters off stage. You know, there is that aspect that Palestinians are always the victims and have no sense of moral agency and can't achieve things unless they're given things, right? And I think that's just false. We're seeing now tectonic shifts occurring in the Arab world. And visible in those shifts are improved relations between Israel and some of the Gulf state countries, for example, Oman, another example. But under that, I think there's also a burgeoning realization in much of the Arab world that seven or eight decades of anti-Zionism has served nobody well, least of all that, and that Israel is, can be more of an asset, not just vis-a-vis Iran, but in other areas, then it is a problem. And that scapegoating another state for the failures of your own systems of governance is a losing proposition. And that Israel can teach them about what it means to cultivate human capital when you don't have natural resources or abundant natural resources. And I think there is a generation of Arab leaders who see this really clearly and who are just bored by the endless invocations of anti-Zionism as the only cause that matters. Among the people it has harmed, in terms of global sympathy, are Muslims themselves. Because when the only group of people you see as a victim are, say, Palestinians, it means you're not paying the kind of attention you need to pay about, you know, Uyghurs in Xinjiang who have been put into concentration camps by the hundreds of thousands. It means you're not paying attention to Russia's campaigns of atrocities in its own predominantly uh, Muslim regions in the Caucasus. It means that you were blind to the depredations of the Assad regime before the uprising, before the civil war. There's a price to be paid for this relentless, endless, exaggerated and fundamentally false depiction of Israel and the Palestinians, which is a tragic conflict, but it is not a tale of endless human rights abusers with Israel as the perpetrator and as the villain. Now, my final question, Brett, is that, you know, we see Israel as becoming more ostracized from a lot of the world, you know, despite the fact that you just said 
Israel is starting to connect with some of its Gulf neighbors in a pretty profound way. Do you worry that a distance will grow between Israel and the United States? Well, look, I was heartened by the fact that Joe Biden picked Senator Harris. I think she is much more clearly sympathetic, at least given her past statements to Israel than some of the other potential contenders. It's difficult to make forecasts for the future, but I will say that you know all kinds of smart people have been forecasting the Israel-America divorce since at least the late 1970s, if not the early 1980s. Right. And somehow it never quite seems to come about. You know, you could have said, oh, the 1982 Lebanon war was the crisis or the first intifada was the crisis, you know, and, and so forth and so on. And so there's been a kind of a relative constancy, actually, in terms of the relationship which is to say, you know, it's the classic Jewish telegram, worry now, you know, more to follow. And things have never been as bad as we had feared. That doesn't mean you shouldn't work on it and you shouldn't be concerned. It just means that for some miraculous reason, Americans by and large still look at Israel as a country that is defying fanatical and tyrannical enemies that is creating the institutions of a reasonably urbane and tolerant and forward-looking state and whose values coincide fundamentally with the values of America. And I think so long as Israel is what it is and America is what it is, so long as neither country loses its essential character, I'm concerned, but I'm not terrified. Good way to end. Brett Stevens, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Be well. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 